Chapter 5 The Lord Mayor A hundred miles ahead, the sunrise shone on Circle Park, the elegant loop of lawns and flowerbeds that encircled Tier 1. It gleamed in ornamental lakes and on pathways glistening with dew, and it glittered on the white metal spires of Cleo House, Valentine's Villa, that stood among dark cedars at the park's edge like some gigantic conch shell abandoned by a freak high tide. In her bedroom on the top floor, Catherine awoke and lay watching the sunbeams filter through the tortoiseshell shutters on her window. She knew she was unhappy, but at first she did not know why. Then she remembered the previous evening, the attack in the gut, and how that poor, sweet young apprentice had chased after the assassin and got himself killed. She had gone running after father, but by the time she reached the waste chute, it was all over. A young apprentice engineer was stumbling away, his shocked face as white as his rubber coat, and beyond him she found father, looking pale and angry, surrounded by policemen. She had never seen him look like that before, nor heard the harsh, unnatural voice in which he snapped at her to go straight home. Part of her just wanted to curl up and go back to sleep, but she had to see him and make sure he was all right. She flung back the quilt and got up, pulling on the clothes from last night that lay all crumpled on the floor, still smelling of furnaces. Outside her bedroom door, a hallway sloped gently downward, round-roofed, curling about on itself like the inside of an ammonite. She hurried down it, pausing to pay her respects before the statue of Cleo, goddess of history, who stood in a niche outside the door to the dining room. In other niches lay treasures that her father had brought back from his expeditions, pot-sherds, fragments of computer keyboards, and the rusting metal skulls of stalkers, those strange, half-mechanical soldiers from a forgotten war. Their cracked glass eyes stared balefully at Catherine as she hurried by. Father was drinking coffee in the atrium, the big open space at the centre of the house. He was still in his dressing gown, his long face serious as he paced up and down between the potted ferns. A glance at his eyes was enough to tell Catherine that he had not slept at all. Father? she asked. What's happened? Oh, Kate, he came and hugged her tight. What a night! That poor boy, Catherine whispered. Poor Tom. I suppose they didn't find anything? Valentine shook his head. The assassin dragged him with her when she jumped. They were both drowned in the mud of the outcountry, or crushed beneath the tracks. Oh, whispered Catherine and sat down on the edge of a table, not even noticing Dog when he came padding in to rest his great head on her knee. Poor Tom, she thought. He had been so sweet, so eager to please. She had really liked him. She had even thought of asking Father about bringing him up to work at Cleo House, so she and Dog could get to know him better. And now he was dead. His soul fled down to the sunless country, and his body lying cold in the cold mud somewhere in the city's wake. The Lord Mayor isn't happy, said Valentine, glancing at the clock. An assassin loose in the gut on London's first day back in the hunting ground. He is coming down here in person to discuss it. 
Will you sit with me while I wait for him? You can have some of my breakfast if you like. There is coffee on the table, rolls, butter. I have no appetite at all. Catherine had no appetite either, but she glanced at the food and noticed a battered leather pack lying on the far side of the table. It was the pack the girl assassin had dropped in the gut last night, and its contents were spread out around it like exhibits in a strange museum. A metal water bottle, a first aid kit, some string, a few strips of dried meat that looked tougher than the tongues of old boots, and a stained and crumpled sheet of paper with a photograph stapled to it. Catherine picked it up. It was an identity form, issued in a town called Stroll, filthy and faded and coming apart along the creases. Before she could study the writing, her eye was drawn to the photograph. She gasped. Father! Her face! Valentine turned, saw her holding the paper, and snatched it from her with an angry cry. No, Kate, that is not for your eyes. It is not for anybody's eyes. He pulled out his lighter and carefully lit a corner of the form, folding it into the ashtray on his desk as it burned. Then he went back to his pacing, and Catherine sat and watched him. In the ten years since she arrived in London, Catherine had come to think of him as her best friend as well as her father. They liked the same things and laughed at the same jokes, and never kept secrets from each other. But she could see that he was keeping something from her about this girl. She had never seen him so worried by anything. "'Who is she, father?' she asked. "'Do you know her from one of your expeditions? She is so young and so—' Whatever happened to her face? There were footsteps, a knock at the door, and Pusey burst into the room. Lord Mayor's on his way, Chief. Already? gasped Valentine. Afraid so. Gench just saw him coming across the park in his bug. Said he didn't look pleased. Valentine didn't look pleased either. He grabbed his robes from the chair back, where they had been flung, and started trying to make himself presentable. Catherine stepped forward to help, but he waved her away, so she kissed him quickly on the cheek and hurried out with Dog trotting behind her. Through the big oval windows of the drawing-room she could see a white official bug pulling in through the gates of Cleo House. A squad of soldiers ran ahead of it, dressed in the bright red armour of the Beef-Eaters, the Lord Mayor's personal bodyguard. They took up positions around the garden like ugly lawn ornaments, as Gench and one of the other servants hurried forward to open the bug's glastic lid. The Lord Mayor stepped out and came striding toward the house. Magnus Crome had been ruler of London for nearly twenty years, but he still didn't look like a Lord Mayor. The Lord Mayors in Catherine's history books were chubby, merry, red-faced men, but Crome was as thin as an old crow and twice as gloomy. He didn't even wear the scarlet robes that had been the pride and joy of other mares, but still dressed in his long white rubber coat and wore the red wheel of the Guild of Engineers upon his brow. Those earlier Lord Mayors had had their guild marks removed to show that they were serving the whole of London, but things had changed when Crome seized power. And even if some people said it was unfair for one man to be master of the engineers and Lord Mayor, they still admitted that Crome made a good job of running the city. Catherine didn't like him. 
She had never liked him, even though he had been so good to her father, and she was not in any mood to meet him this morning. As soon as she heard the front door Iris open, she hurried back into the corridor and started up it, calling softly for Dog to follow her. She stopped as soon as she was around the first bend, hidden in a shallow alcove, resting the tips of her fingers on the wolf's head to keep him still. She could tell that some terrible trouble had overtaken her father, and she was not going to let him keep the truth from her as if she were still a little girl. A few seconds later she saw Gensch arrive at the door to the atrium, clutching his hat in his hands. "'This way, your worshipful honour," he mumbled, bowing. Uh, "'Mind you step, your mayoness.' Close behind came Chrome. He paused for a moment, his head flicking from side to side in an oddly reptilian way, and Catherine felt his gaze sweep the corridor like a wind from the ice wastes. She squeezed herself tighter into the alcove, and prayed to Quirk and Cleo that he would not see her. For a moment she could hear his breathing, and the faint squeaks and creakings of his rubber coat. Then Gensch led him into the atrium, and the danger was past. With one hand firmly on Dog's collar, she crept back to the door and listened. She could hear Father's voice, and imagined him standing beside the ornamental fountain while his men showed Chrome to a seat. He started to make some polite comment about the weather, but the cold, thin voice of the Lord Mayor interrupted him. I have been reading your report of last night's escapade, Valentine. You assured me that the whole family had been dealt with. Catherine flinched away from the door, as though it had burned her. How dare the old man talk to father like that? She did not want to hear any more. But curiosity got the better of her, and she set her ear against the wood again. A ghost from my past, father was saying. I can't imagine how she escaped, and Quirk alone knows where she learned to be so agile and cunning. But she is dead now. So is the boy who caught her, poor Natsworthy. Are you sure of that? They fell out of the city, Chrome. That means nothing. We are travelling over soft ground. They may have survived. You should have sent men down to check. Remember, we don't know how much the girl knew of her mother's work. If she were to tell another city that we have Medusa before we are ready to use it— I know, I know, said Valentine irritably, and Catherine heard a chair creak as he flung himself down in it. I'll take the thirteenth-floor elevator back and see if I can find the bodies. No, ordered Chrome. I have other plans for you and your airship. I want you to fly ahead— and see what lies between London and its goal. Chrome, that is a job for a planning committee scout ship, not the elevator. No, snapped Chrome again. I don't want too many people to know where we are taking the city. They will find out when the time is ripe. Besides, I have a task in mind that only you can be trusted with. And the girl? asked Valentine. Don't worry about her said the Lord Mayor. I have an agent who can be relied on to track her down and finish the job you failed to do. Concentrate on preparing your airship, Valentine. The meeting was at an end. 
Catherine heard the Lord Mayor getting ready to leave and hurried away up the corridor before the door opened, her mind whirling faster than one of the tumble dryers in the London Museum's Hall of Ancient Technology. Back in her room, she sat down to wonder about the things she had heard. She had hoped to solve a mystery, but instead it had grown deeper. All she was sure of was that Father had a secret. He had never kept anything from her before. He always told her everything, and asked her opinion, and wanted her advice. But now he was whispering with the Lord Mayor about the girl being a ghost from his past, and some agent being sent back to look for her, and do what? Could Tom and the assassin really still be alive? And why was the Lord Mayor packing father off on a reconnaissance flight amid such secrecy? And why didn't he want to say where London was going? And what, what on earth, was Medusa? Chapter 6 Speedwell All that day they struggled onward trudging along in the scar that London had clawed through the soft earth of the hunting ground. The city was never out of their sight, but it grew smaller and smaller, more and more distant, pulling away from them toward the east, and Tom realized that it might soon be lost forever beyond the horizon. Loneliness wrenched at him. He had never much enjoyed his life as an apprentice historian, third class, but now his years in the museum felt like a beautiful golden dream. He found himself missing fussy old Dr. Arkengarth and pompous Chudley Pomeroy. He missed his bunk in the drafty dormitory and the long hours of work. And he missed Catherine Valentine, although he had known her for only a few minutes. Sometimes, if he closed his eyes, he could see her face quite clearly, her kind grey eyes and her lovely smile. He was sure that she didn't know what sort of man her father was. "'Watch where you're going!' snapped Hester Shaw, and he opened his eyes and realized that he had almost led her over the brink of one of the gaping track marks. On they went, and on, and Tom started to think that what he missed most about his city was the food. It had never been much, the stuff they served in the guild canteen, but it was better than nothing— and nothing was what he had now. When he asked Hester Shaw what they were supposed to live on out here, she just said, I bet you wish you hadn't lost my pack for me now, London boy. I had some good dried dog meat in my pack. In the early afternoon, they came across a few dull greyish bushes that London's tracks had not quite buried, and Hester tore some leaves off and mashed them to a pulp between two stones. They'd be better cooked, she said, as they ate the horrid vegetable goo. I had the makings of a fire in my pack. Later, she caught a frog in one of the deep pools that were already forming in the chevroned track prints. She didn't offer Tom any, and he tried not to watch while she ate it. He still did not know what to make of her. She was silent, mostly, and glared so fiercely at him when he tried to talk to her that he quickly learned to walk in silence, too. But sometimes, quite suddenly, she would start talking. The land's rising, she might say. That means London'll go slower. It would waste fuel going full speed on an uphill stretch. Then, an hour or two later, 
My mum used to say traction cities are stupid. She said there was a reason for them a thousand years ago, when there were all those earthquakes and volcanoes and the glaciers pushing south. Now they just keep rolling around and eating each other, because people are too stupid to stop them. Tom liked it when she talked, even though he did think that her mum sounded like a dangerous anti-tractionist. But when he tried to keep the conversation going, she would go quiet again, and her hand would go up to hide her face. It was as if there were two Hesters sharing the same thin body. One, a grim avenger who thought only of killing Valentine, the other, a quick, clever, likeable girl whom he sometimes sensed peeking out at him from behind that scarred mask. He wondered if she was slightly mad. It would be enough to send anyone mad, seeing your parents murdered. How did it happen? he asked her gently. I mean, your mum and dad. Are you sure it was Valentine who— Shut up and walk, she said. But long after dark, as they huddled in a hollow of the mud to escape the chill night wind, she suddenly started telling him her story. I was born on the bare earth, she said, but it wasn't like this. I lived on Oak Island in the far west. It used to be a part of the hunting ground once, but the earthquakes drowned all the land around and made an island of it, too far offshore for any hungry city to attack and too rocky for the amphibious towns to get at. It was lovely. Green hills and great outcrops of stone, and the streams running through tangly oak woods, all grey with lichen, the trees shaggy with it, like old dogs. Tom shuddered. Every Londoner knew that only savages lived on the bare earth. I prefer a nice firm deck plate under me, he said, but Hester didn't seem to hear him. The words kept spilling out of her twisted mouth, as if she had no choice in the matter. There was a town there called Dunromin. It was mobile once, but the people got sick of running all the time from bigger towns, so they floated it across to Oak Island, and took its wheels and engines off, and dug it into a hillside. It's been sitting there a hundred years or more, and you never know it used to move at all. But that's awful, Tom gasped. It's downright anti-tractionist. My mum and dad lived down the road away, she went on, talking straight over him. They had a house on the edge of the moor, where the sea comes in. Dad was a farmer, and mum was a historian, like you, only a lot cleverer than you, of course. She flew off each summer in her airship, digging for old tech. But in the autumn, she'd come home. I used to go up to her study in the attic on winter's nights and eat cheese on toast, and she'd tell me about her adventures. And then, one night, seven years ago, I woke up late and there were voices up in the attic, arguing. So I went up the ladder and looked, and Valentine was there. I knew him, because he was Mum's friend and used to drop in on us when he was passing. Only he wasn't being very friendly that night. Give me the machine, Pandora, he kept saying. Give me Medusa. He didn't see me watching him. I was at the top of the ladder, looking into the attic, too scared to go up and too scared to go back. Valentine had his back to me, and Mum stood facing him, holding this machine, and she said, 
Damn you, Thaddeus, I found it, it's mine. And then Valentine drew his sword and he, and he... She paused for breath. She wanted to stop, but she was riding a wave of memory, and it was carrying her backward to that night, that room, and the blood that had spattered her mother's star charts like the map of a new constellation. And then he turned round and saw me watching, and he came at me, and I dived back so his sword only cut my face, and I fell back down the ladder. He must have thought he'd killed me. I heard him go to Mum's desk and start rustling through the papers there, and I got up and ran. Dad was lying on the kitchen floor. He was dead too. Even the dogs were dead. I ran out of the house and saw Valentine's great black ship moored at the end of the garden with his men waiting. They came after me, but I escaped. I ran down to the boathouse and shoved off in Dad's skiff. I think I meant to go round to Dunroman and get help. I was only little, and I thought a doctor could help Mum and Dad. But I was so weak with the pain and all the blood. I untied the boat somehow, and the current swept it out. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up on the shores of the hunting ground. I lived in the outcountry after that. At first, I didn't remember much. It was as if when he cut my head open... Some of my memories spilled out, and the rest got muddled about. But slowly, I started remembering. And one day I remembered Valentine, and what he'd done. That's when I decided to come and find him. Kill him the same way he killed my mum and dad. What was this machine? asked Tom in the long silence. This Medusa thing? Hester shrugged. It was too dark to see her by this time, but he heard her shrug, the hunch of her shoulders inside her filthy coat. Something my mum found, old tech, it didn't look important, like a metal soccer ball, all bashed and dented. But that's what he killed her for. Seven years ago, whispered Tom. That's when Mr. Valentine got made head of the guild. They said he'd found something in the outcountry, and Crome was so pleased that he promoted him, straight over the heads of Chudley Pomeroy and all the rest. But I never heard what it was he'd found, and I never heard of a Medusa before. Hester said nothing at all. After a few minutes, she began to snore. Tom sat awake for a long time, turning her story over and over in his mind. He thought of the daydreams that had kept him going through long, tedious days in the museum. He had dreamed of being trapped in the outcountry with a beautiful girl on the trail of some murderous criminal. But he had never imagined it would be so wet and cold, or that his legs would ache so, or that the murderer would be London's greatest hero. And as for the beautiful girl... He looked at the blunt wreck of Hester Shaw's face in the faint moonlight, scowling even in her sleep. He understood her better now. She hated Valentine, but she hated herself even more, for being so ugly and for being still alive when her parents were dead. He remembered how he had felt when the big tilt happened, and he came home and found his house flattened and mum and dad gone. 
He had thought that it was all his fault somehow. He had felt full of guilt because he had not been there to die with them. I must help her, he thought. I won't let her kill Mr. Valentine, but I'll find a way to get the truth out, if it is the truth. Maybe tomorrow London will have slowed down a bit and Hester's leg will be better. We'll be back in the city by sundown, and somebody will listen to us. But next morning they woke to find that the city was even farther ahead, and Hester's leg was worse. She moaned with pain at almost every step now. Her face was the colour of old snow, and fresh blood was soaking through her bandages and running down into her boot. Tom cursed himself for throwing those rags of shirt away, and for making Hester lose her pack and her first aid kit. In the middle of the morning, through shifting veils of rain, they saw something ahead of them. A pile of slag and clinker lay spilled across the track marks, where London had vented it the day before. Drawn up beside it was a strange little town, and as they got closer, Hester and Tom could see that people were scrambling up and down the spoil heap, sifting out collops of melted metal and fragments of unburned fuel. The sight gave them hope, and they pressed forward faster. By early afternoon they were walking under the shadow of the townlet's huge wheels, and Tom was staring up in amazement at its single tier. It was smaller than a lot of the houses in London, and it appeared to have been built out of wood by somebody whose idea of good carpentry was to bang a couple of nails in and hope for the best. Behind the shed-like town hall rose the huge crooked chimneys of an experimental engine array. Welcome, shouted a tall, white-bearded man, picking his way down the clinker heap, grubby brown robes flapping. Welcome to Speedwell. I am Orm Rayland. Mayor, do you speak English? Hester hung back suspiciously, but Tom thought the old man looked friendly enough. He stepped forward and said, Please, sir, we need some food and a doctor to look at my friend's leg. I'm not your friend, hissed Hester Shaw, and there's nothing wrong with my leg. But she was white and trembling, and her face shone with sweat. No doctor in Speedwell, anyway, <laughs> laughed Rayland. Not one. And as for food, well, times are hard. Do you have anything you can trade? Tom patted the pockets of his tunic. He had a little money, but he didn't see what use London money would be to Orm Rayland. Then he touched something hard. It was the seedy he had found in the gut. He pulled it out and looked wistfully at it for a moment before he handed it to the old man. He had been planning to make a present of it to Catherine Valentine one day, but now food was more important. Pretty, very pretty, admitted Orm Rayland, tilting the disc and admiring the rippling rainbows. Not a lot of use, but worth a few nights' shelter and a bit of food. It's not very good food, mind, but it's better than nothing. He was right. It wasn't very good. But Tom and Hester ate greedily anyway, and then held out their bowls for more. It's made from algae, mostly, explained Orm Rayland, as his wife slopped out second helpings of the bluish muck, 
We grow it in vats down under the main engine room. Nasty stuff, but it keeps body and soul together when Pickings is thin, and between you and me, Pickings has never been thinner. That's why we were so glad to come across this mound of trash we're scraping through. Tom nodded, leaning back in his chair and looking around the Raylands' quarters. It was a tiny, cheese-shaped room, and not at all what he would have expected of a mayoral residence. But then Orm Rayland was not exactly what he would have expected of a mayor. The shabby old man seemed to rule over a town composed mainly of his own family, sons and daughters, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and the husbands and wives that they had met on passing towns. But Rayland was not a happy man. It's no fun running attraction town, he kept saying. No, no fun at all, not any more. There was a time when a little place like Speedwell could go about its business quite safely, being too small for any other town to bother eating. But not now, not with prey so scarce. Everyone we see wants to eat us. We even found ourselves running from a city the other day. One of those big Frankish-speaking veal-mobile, it was. I ask you, what good would a place like Speedwell be to a monster like that? We'd barely take the edge off its appetite, but they chased us anyway. Your town must be very fast, said Tom. Oh, yes, agreed Rayland, beaming, and his wife put in. Hundred miles an hour, top speed. That's Rayland's doing. He's a wizard with those big engines of his. Could you help us? asked Tom, leaning forward in his seat. We need to get to London as quickly as possible. I'm sure you could catch it up, and there might be more spoil heaps along the way. <laughs> Bless you, lad, said Rayland, shaking his head. What London drops isn't worth going far for, not these days. Everything's recycled now that prey's so short. Why, I remember the days when cities' waste heaps used to dot the hunting ground like mountains. Oh, there was good pickings then, but not any more. Besides, he added with a shudder, I wouldn't take my town too close to London, or any other city. You can't trust them these days. They'd turn around and snaffle us, like as not. Chomp! No, no. Tom nodded, trying not to show his disappointment. He glanced across at Hester, but her head was hanging down, and she seemed to be asleep or unconscious. He hoped it was just the effects of her long walk and her full stomach, but as he started up to check that she was all right, Rayland said, I tell you what, though, lad, we'll take you to the cluster. To the what? To the trading cluster. It's a gathering of small towns, a couple of days run southeast of here. We were going anyway. There'll be lots of towns at the cluster, Mrs. Rayland agreed. And even if none of them is prepared to take you and your friend to London, you'll soon find an air trader who will, bound to be air traders at a cluster. I, said Tom, and stopped. He wasn't feeling very well. The room seemed to waver, then started to roll like the picture on a badly tuned goggle screen. He looked at Hester and saw that she had slipped off her seat onto the floor. 
The Raylan's household gods grinned at him from their shrine on the wall, and one of them seemed to be saying in Orm Raylan's voice, Sure to be airships there, Tom, always airships at a trading cluster. Would you like some more algae, dear? inquired Mrs. Rayland as he fell to his knees. From a long, long way away, he heard her saying, It took an awfully long time to take effect, didn't it, all me? And Rayland replying, We'll have to put more in next time, my sweet. Then the swirling patterns on the carpet reached up and twined around him and pulled him down into a sleep that was as soft as cotton wool and filled with dreams of Catherine. Chapter 7 High London Above Tier 1, above the busy shops of Mayfair and Piccadilly, above Quirk Circus, where the statue of London's saviour stands proudly on its fluted steel column, top tier hangs over the city like an iron crown supported by vast pillars. It is the smallest, highest, and most important of the seven tiers, and though only three buildings stand there, they are the three greatest buildings in London. To Sternwood rise the towers of the Guild Hall, where the greater and lesser guilds all have their offices and meet in council once a month. Opposite it is the building where the real decisions are made, the black glass claw of the Engineerium. Between them stands St. Paul's, the ancient Christian temple that Quirk re-erected up here when he turned London into a traction city. It is a sad sight now, covered in scaffolding and shored up with props, for it was never meant to move, and London's journeys have shaken the old stonework terribly. But soon it will be open to the public again. The Guild of Engineers has promised to restore it, and if you listen closely, you can hear the drills and hammers of their men at work inside. Magnus Crome hears them, as his bug goes purring through the old cathedral's shadow to the Engineerium. They make him smile, a faint, secret smile. Inside the Engineerium, the sunlight is kept at bay behind black windows. A cold neon glow washes the metal walls, and the air smells of antiseptic, which Chrome thinks is a welcome relief from the stench of flowers and new-mown grass that hangs over high London on this warm spring day. A young apprentice leaps to attention as he stalks into the lobby and bows her bald head when he barks, Take me to Dr. Twix! A monorail car is waiting. The apprentice helps the Lord Mayor into it, and it takes him sweeping up in a slow spiral through the heart of the Engineerium. He passes floor after floor of offices and conference rooms and laboratories, and glimpses the shapes of strange machines through walls of frosted glass. Everywhere he looks he sees his engineers at work, tinkering with fragments of old tech, performing experiments on rats and dogs, or guiding groups of shaven-headed children who are up on a day trip from the guild's nurseries in the deep gut. He feels safe and satisfied, here in the clean, bright inner sanctum of his guild. It makes him remember why he loves London so much, and why he has devoted his whole career to finding ways to keep it moving. When Chrome was a young apprentice many years ago, 
he read gloomy forecasts which said that prey was running out and traction cities were doomed. He has made it his life's work to prove them wrong, clawing his way to the top of his guild and then on to the Lord Mayor's throne was just the start. His fierce recycling and anti-waste laws were merely a stopgap. Now he is almost ready to unveil his real plan. But first, he must be certain that the Shaw girl can make no more trouble. The car comes sighing to a halt outside one of the upper laboratories. A squat, white-coated barrel of a woman stands waiting at the entrance, hopping nervously from foot to foot. Evadne Twix is one of the best engineers in London. She may look like someone's dotty auntie and decorate her laboratory with pictures of flowers and puppies, a clear breach of guild rules, but when it comes to her work, she is utterly ruthless. Hello, Lord Mayor, she simpers, bowing. How lovely to see you. Have you come to visit my babies? I want to see Shrike he snaps, brushing past, and she dances along in his wake like a leaf in the slipstream of a passing city. Through her laboratory they go, past startled bowing engineers, past glittering racks of glassware, and past tables where rusting metal skeletons are being painstakingly repaired. Dr. Twix's team has spent years studying the stalkers, the resurrected men whose remains turn up sometimes in the outcountry, and lately they have had more than just remains to work on. You have completed your researches on Shrike? asks Chrome as he strides along. You are certain he is of no further use to us? Oh, <laughs> I've learned everything we can, Lord Mayor, <laughs> twitters the doctor. He's a fascinating piece of work, but really far more complicated than is good for him. He has almost developed his own personality, and as for his strange fixation with this girl, I shall make sure my new models are much simpler. Do you wish me to have him dismantled? No. Chrome stops at a small round door and touches a stud that sends it whirling open. I intend to keep my promise to Shrike, and I have a job for him. Beyond the door hang shadows and a smell of oil. A tall shape stands motionless against a far wall. As the Lord Mayor steps into the room, two round green eyes snap on like headlights. Mr. Shrike, says Chrome, sounding almost cheery. How are we today? I hope you were not asleep. I do not sleep, replies a voice from the darkness. It is a horrible voice, sharp as the squeal of rusty cogs. Even Dr. Twix, who knows it well, shudders inside her rubber coat. Do you wish... To examine me again? No, Shrike, Chrome says. Do you remember what you warned me of when you first came to me, a year and a half ago, about the Shaw girl? I told you 
that she is alive and on her way to London. Well, it seems you were right. She turned up just as you said she would. Where is she? Bring her to me? Impossible, I'm afraid. She jumped down a waste chute back into the outcountry. There was a slow hiss, like steam escaping. I must go after her. Chrome smiles. I was hoping you'd say that. One of my guild's Goshawk 90 reconnaissance airships has been made ready for you. The pilots will retrace the city's tracks until you find where the girl fell. If she and her companion are dead, all well and good. If they are alive, kill them. Bring their bodies to me. And then, asks the voice, and then, Shrike, Chrome replies, I will give you your heart's desire. It was a strange time for London. The city was still travelling at quite a high speed, as if there were a catch in sight. But there was no other town to be seen on the grey, muddy plains of the northwestern hunting ground. And everybody was wondering what the Lord Mayor could be planning. We can't just go driving on like this, Catherine heard one of her servants mutter. There are big cities farther east, and they'll scoff us up and spit out the bones. But Mrs. Mallow, the housekeeper, whispered back, don't you know nothing, Suki Blinder? Ain't Mr. Valentine himself been sent off on a expedition to spy out the land ahead? Him and Magnus Crome have got their eye on some vast great prize, you can be sure of it. Some vast great prize, perhaps, but nobody knew what. And when Valentine came home at lunchtime from another meeting with the Guild of Engineers, Catherine asked him, why do they have to send you off on a reconnaissance flight? That's a job for a navigator, not the best archaeologist in the world. It's not fair. Valentine sighed patiently. The Lord Mayor trusts me, Kate, and I will soon be back. Three weeks, a month, no more. Now, come down to the hangar with me, and we'll see what Pusey and Gensch have been doing to that airship of mine. In the long millennia since the Sixty-Minute War, airship technology had reached levels that even the ancients had never dreamed of. Valentine had the thirteenth-floor elevator specially constructed, using some of the money that Chrome had paid him for the old tech he found on his trip to America twenty years before. He said she was the finest airship ever built, and Catherine saw no reason to doubt him. Of course, he didn't keep her down at the Tier 5 air harbour with the common merchantman, but at a private air key a few hundred yards from Cleo House. Catherine and her father walked toward it through the sunlit park. The hangar and the metal apron in front of it were busy with people and bugs as Pusey and Gensch set about loading the elevator with provisions for the coming flight. Dog went hurrying ahead to sniff at the stacks of crates and drums, Tinned meat, lifting gas, medicines, airship puncture repair kits, sun lotion, gas masks, flame-proof suits, guns, rain capes, cold-weather coats, 
Map making equipment, portable stoves, spare socks, plastic cups, three inflatable dinghies, and a carton labelled "Pink's Patent Outcountry Mud Shoes." Nobody sinks with Pink's. In the shadows of the hangar, the great airship waited. Her sleek black armored envelope screened by tarpaulins. As usual, Catherine felt a rising thrill at the thought of that huge vessel lifting farther. Up into the sky, and a sadness too, that he was leaving her, and a fear that he might not return. Oh, I wish I could go with you," she said. "Not this time, Kate," her father told her. "One day, perhaps." "Is it because I'm a girl?" she asked. "But that doesn't matter. I mean, in ancient times, women were allowed to do all the same things men did." And anyway, the air trade is full of women pilots. You had one yourself on the American trip. I remember seeing pictures of her. It's not that, Kate," he said, hugging her. "It's just that it may be dangerous. Anyway, I don't want you to start turning into an old ragamuffin adventurer like me. I want you to stay here and finish school and become a fine, beautiful, high London lady." And most of all, I want you to stop Dog from peeing over all my crates of soup. When Dog had been dragged away and scolded, they sat down together in the shadow of the hangar, and Catherine said, "So, will you tell me where you are going? That is so important and dangerous." I am not supposed to say," said Valentine, glancing down at her out of the corner of his eye. Oh come on," she laughed. "We're best friends, aren't we? You know I'd never tell anybody else, and I'm desperate to know where London is going to. Everyone at school keeps asking. We've been travelling east at top speed for days and days. We didn't even stop when we ate Salthook. Well, Kate," he admitted, "the fact is, Chrome has asked me to take a look into Shanguo." Shanguo was the leading nation of the Anti-Traction League, the barbarian alliance that controlled the old Indian subcontinent and what was left of China, protected from hungry cities by a great chain of mountains and swamps that marked the eastern limits of the hunting ground. Catherine had studied it in geography. There was only one pass through those mountains, and it was protected by the dreadful fortress city of Batmunk Gompa. The shield wall, beneath whose guns a hundred cities had come to grief in the first few centuries of traction. But why there? She asked. London can't be going there. I didn't say it was, replied Valentine. But one day we may have to go to Shanguo and breach the League's defences. You know how short prey has become. Cities are starting to starve and turn on one another. Catherine shivered. But there must be some other solution, she protested. Can't we talk to the Lord Mayors of other cities and work something out? He laughed gently. I'm afraid municipal Darwinism doesn't work like that, Kate. It's a town each town world. But you mustn't worry. Chrome is a great man, and he will find a way. She nodded unhappily. Her father's eyes had that haunted, hunted look again. He had still not confided in her about the girl assassin, 
and now she could tell that he was keeping something else from her, something about this expedition and the Lord Mayor's plans for London. Was it all connected somehow? She could not ask him directly about the things she had overheard in the atrium without admitting that she had spied on him. But just to see what he would say, she asked, Does this have something to do with that awful girl? Was she from Shanguo? No, said Valentine quickly, and she saw the colour drain from his face. She is dead, Kate, and there is no reason to worry about her any more. Come on. He stood up quickly. We have a few days more together before I set off, so let's make the most of them. We'll sit by the fire and eat buttered toast and talk about old times, and not think about, about that poor, disfigured girl. As they walked back, hand in hand, across the park, a shadow slid over them. A goshawk ninety, departing from the engineerium. You see, said Catherine, the Guild of Engineers has airships of its own. I think it's horrid of Magnus Crome sending you away from me. But her father just shaded his eyes to watch as the white airship circled top tier and flew quickly toward the west. Chapter 8 The Trading Cluster Tom was dreaming of Catherine. She was walking arm in arm with him through the familiar rooms of the museum. Only there were no curators or guildsmen about, nobody to say, Polish the floor, Natsworthy, or dust the forty-third century glassware. He was showing her around the place as if he owned it, and she was smiling at him as he explained the details of the replica airships and the great cutaway model of London. Through it all, a strange moaning music sounded, and it wasn't until they reached the Natural History Gallery that they realized it was the blue whale singing to them. The dream faded, but the weird notes of the whale's song lingered. He was lying on a quivering wooden deck. Wooden walls rose on either side, with morning sunlight glinting through the gaps between the planks. And overhead, a mad confusion of pipes and ducts and tubes crawled over the ceiling. It was Speedwell's plumbing, and its burblings and grumbles were what he had mistaken for the song of the whale. He rolled over and looked around the tiny room. Hester was sitting against the far wall. She nodded when she saw that he was awake. Where am I? he groaned. I didn't know anybody really said that, she said. I thought that was just in books. Where am I? How interesting. No, really, Tom protested, looking around at the rough walls and the narrow metal door. Is this still Speedwell? What happened? The food, of course, she replied. You mean Rayland drugged us? But why? He got up and made his way to the door across the pitching deck. Don't bother, Hester warned him. It's locked. He tried it anyway. She was right. Next, he stumbled over to peer through a crack in the wall. Beyond it, he could see a narrow wooden walkway, that flickered like a goggle-screen picture as the shadow of one of Speedwell's wheels flashed across it. The outcountry was rushing past, looking much rockier and steeper than when last he saw it. We've been heading south by southeast since first light, 
explained Hester wearily before he could ask. Probably longer, but I was asleep too. Where are they taking us? How should I know? Tom sat down in a heap with his back to the shuddering wall. That's it then, he said. London must be hundreds of miles away. I'll never get home now. Hester said nothing. Her face was white, making the scars stand out even more than usual, and blood had soaked into the planking around her injured leg. An hour crawled by, and then another. Sometimes people went hurrying along the walkway outside, their shadows blocking out the skinny shafts of sunlight. The plumbing burbled to itself. At last Tom heard the sound of a padlock being undone. A hatch down low on the door popped open and a face peered in. Everybody all right? it asked. All right? shouted Tom. Of course we're not all right! He scrambled toward the door. Rayland was on hands and knees outside, crouching down so he could see through the hatch, which Tom suspected was really a cat flap. Behind him were the booted feet of some of his men, standing guard. What have you done this for? Tom asked. We haven't done you any harm. The old mare looked embarrassed. That's uh, true, dear boy, but uh, times are hard, you see, cruel hard these days. No fun running attraction town. We have to take what we can get, so we took you. We're going to sell you as slaves, you see, that's how it is. There'll be some slaving towns at the cluster, and we're going to sell you. It has to be done. We need spare parts for our engines if we're to keep a step ahead of the bigger towns. Sell us? Tom had heard of cities that used slaves to work their engine rooms, but it had always seemed like something distant and exotic that would never affect him. I've got to catch London. You can't sell me. Oh, I'm sure you'll fetch a good price, Rayland said, as if it were something Tom should be pleased about. A handsome, healthy lad like you? We'll make sure you go to a good owner. I don't know about your friend, of course. She looks half dead, and she was no oil painting to start with. But maybe we can sell you off together, buy one, get one free sort of thing. He pushed two bowls through the flap, round metal bowls such as a dog would eat from. One contained water, the other more of the bluish algae. Eat up, he said cheerfully. We want you looking nice and well fed for the auction. We'll be at the cluster by sundown and sell you in the morning. But, Tom protested, yes, I know, and I'm terribly sorry about it, but what can I do? said Rayland sadly. Times are hard, you know. The hatch slammed shut. What about my CD? shouted Tom. There was no answer. He heard Rayland's voice in the passage outside, talking to the guard. Then nothing. He cupped his hands and drank some water, then took the bowl across to Hester. We've got to get away, he told her. How? Tom looked around their cell. The door was no use, locked and guarded as it was. He peered up at the plumbing until he had a crick in his neck, but although some of the pipes looked big enough for a person to crawl through, 
he could see no way to get into them, or even to reach them. Anyway, he wouldn't have fancied crawling through whatever that thick fluid was that he could hear gurgling inside them. He turned his attention to the wall, feeling his way along the planks. At last he found one that felt slightly loose, and gradually, as he worked at it, it started to get looser still. It was slow, hard, painful work, Tom's fingers filled with splinters, and the sweat ran down his face, and he had to stop each time someone passed along the walkway outside. Hester watched silently, until he started to feel cross with her for not helping. But by evening, as the sky outside turned red and the racing townlet started to slow, he had made a gap just wide enough to get his head through. He waited until he was sure there was no one about, then leaned out. Speedwell was passing through the shadows of some tall spines of rock, the town-gnawed cores of old mountains. Ahead lay a natural amphitheatre, a shallow bowl between more rock spires, and it was full of towns. Tom had never seen so many trading suburbs and traction villages gathered in one place before. We're here, he told Hester. It's the trading cluster. Speedwell slowed and slowed, manoeuvring into a space between a ragged little sail-powered village and a larger market town. Tom could hear the people on the new towns hailing Speedwell, asking where it had come from and what it had to trade. Scrap metal, he heard Mrs. Rayland bellow back, and some wood and a pretty seedy and two fine, fresh, healthy young slaves. Oh, quirk, muttered Tom, working away at enlarging the hole he had made. It'll never be big enough, said Hester, who always expected the worst and was usually right. You could try helping instead of just sitting there, Tom snapped back, but he regretted it at once, for he could see that she was very ill. He wondered what would happen if she was too weak to escape. He couldn't run off into the outcountry alone and leave her here. But if he stayed, he would end up as a slave on one of these filthy little towns. He tried not to think about it, and concentrated on making the hole bigger, while the sky outside grew dark and the moon rose. He could hear music and laughter drifting across the trading cluster, and the sounds of gangways being run out as some of Raylan's people went off to enjoy themselves aboard the other towns. He scrabbled and scratched at the hole, prizing at the planks, scraping at them with a rusty nail, but it was no use. At last, desperate, he turned to Hester and hissed, Please, help! The girl stood up unsteadily and walked over to where he crouched. She looked sick, but not quite as bad as he'd feared. Perhaps she had been saving herself, harbouring her last reserves of strength until it was dark enough to escape. She felt around the edges of the hole he had made and nodded. Then, leaning all her weight on Tom's shoulder, she swung her good foot up hard against the wall. Once, twice she kicked it, the wood around the hole splintering and yielding, and at the third kick a whole section of planking fell out, spilling across the walkway outside. I could have done that, said Tom, staring at the ragged hole and wondering why he hadn't thought of it. But you didn't, did you? said Hester, and tried to smile. It was the first time he had seen her smile, 
an ugly, crooked thing, but very welcome. It made him feel that she was starting to like him and didn't just regard him as an annoyance. Come on, then, she said, if you're coming. Hundreds of miles away, across the moonlit mud, Shrike spots something. He signals to the engineer pilots, who nod and grumble as they steer the Goshawk 90 down to land. What now? How much longer are we going to keep flying back and forth along these track marks before he'll admit the kids are dead? But they grumble quietly. They are terrified of Shrike. The hatch opens and Shrike stalks out. His green eyes sweep from side to side until he finds what he is looking for. A rag of white fabric from a torn shirt, soggy with rain, half buried in the mud. Uh, Hester Shaw was here, he tells the outcountry at large, and begins sniffing for her scent. Chapter 9 The Jenny Hanover At first it looked as if their luck might hold. They scrambled quickly across the dimly lit walkway and down into the shadows under one of Speedwell's wheel arches. They could see the dark bulks of the other towns, with lights burning in their windows, and a big bonfire on the top deck of one of them, a mining townlet on the far side of the cluster where a noisy party was in progress. They crept along the outside edge of Speedwell, to a place where a gangplank stretched across to the market town that was parked next door. It was unguarded but brightly lit, and as they reached the far end and stepped onto the deck of the market town, a voice somewhere behind them shouted, Hey! And then louder, Hey! Hey! Uncle Rayland! Them slaves escaping! They ran, or rather Tom ran, and dragged Hester along beside him, hearing her whimper in pain at every step. Up a stairway, along a catwalk, past a shrine to Peripatisha, goddess of wandering towns, and they were in a market square, lined with big iron cages, in some of which thin, miserable slaves were waiting to be sold off. Tom forced himself to slow down, and tried to look inconspicuous, listening all the time for sounds of pursuit. There were none. Maybe the Raylands had given up the chase, or maybe they weren't allowed to chase people onto other towns. Tom didn't know what the rules were in a trading cluster. Head for the bows! said Hester, letting go his arm and pulling the collar of her coat up to hide her face. If we're lucky, there'll be an air harbour at the bows. They were lucky. At the front of the town's top deck was a raised section where half a dozen small airships were tethered, their dark, gas-filled envelopes like sleeping whales. Are we going to steal one? Tom whispered. Not unless you know how to fly an airship, said Hester weakly. There's an airman's cafe over there. We'll have to try and book passage like normal people. The cafe was just an ancient rusting airship gondola that had been bolted to the deck. A few metal tables stood in front, beneath a stripy awning. Hurricane lamps were burning there, and an old aviator slumped snoring in a chair. The only other customer was a sinister-looking woman in a long red leather coat who sat in the shadows near the bar. In spite of the dark, she wore sunglasses 
the tiny lenses black as the wing cases of beetles. She turned to stare at Tom as he walked up to the counter. A small man with a huge drooping moustache was polishing glasses. He glanced up without much interest when Tom said, I'm looking for a ship. Where to? Uh, London, said Tom. Me and my friend have to get back to London, and we have to leave tonight. London, is it? The man's moustachios twitched like the tails of two squirrels that had been shoved up his nose and were starting to get a bit restless. Only ships with a license from the London Merchants Guild can dock there. We've got nothing like that here. Staines ain't that sort of town. Perhaps I may be of help, suggested a soft, foreign-sounding voice at Tom's shoulder. The woman in the red coat had come silently to his side. A lean, handsome woman with badgery slashes of white in her short black hair. Reflections of the hurricane lamps danced in her sunglasses, and when she smiled, Tom noticed that her teeth were stained red. I haven't a license for London, but I am going to Airhaven. You could find a ship there that will take you the rest of the way. Have you some money? Tom hadn't thought about that part. He rummaged in his tunic and fished out two tattered banknotes with the face of Quirk on the front and Magnus Crome gazing sternly from the back. He had put them in his pocket the night he fell out of London, hoping to spend them at the catch party in Kensington Gardens. Here, under the fizzing hurricane lamps of the air harbour, they looked out of place, like toy money. The woman seemed to think so too. Ah, she said. Twenty quirks, but notes like that can only be spent in London. Not much use to a poor, wandering skyfarer like me. Don't you have any gold, or old tech? Tom shrugged and mumbled something. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw some newcomers pushing their way between the tables. Look, Uncle Wayland, he heard one of them shout. Here they are! We've got em! Tom looked around and saw Rayland and a couple of his boys closing in, carrying heavy clubs. He grabbed Hester, who was leaning against the counter, barely conscious. One of the Speedwell men moved to cut off their escape, but the woman in the red coat barred his way, and Tom heard her say, These are my passengers. I was just arranging a fee. They're our slaves, shouted Rayland, pushing past her. Tom Nitsworthy and his friend found them in the out-country fair and square finders keepers. Tom hurried Hester across the metal deck, past stairways leading up to the quays where the airships moored. He could hear Raylan's men splitting up, shouting to each other as they searched, then a grunt and a crash, as if one of them had fallen over. Good, he thought, but he knew that the others would soon find him. He dragged Hester up a short iron stairway to the quays. There were lights in some of the ships that hung at anchor there, and he had a vague idea about forcing his way aboard one of them and making them take him to London. But he had nothing that would serve as a weapon, and before he could look for one, there were feet ringing on the ladder behind him and Raylan's voice saying, Please try and be reasonable, Mr. Nitsworthy. 
I don't want to have to hurt you. Fred, he added, I've got the rotters cornered. Fred? Tom felt the hope drain out of him. There was no escape now. He stood there meekly as Raylan stepped forward into the light from the portholes of a nearby airship, hefting his club. Hester slumped against a dockside winch and moaned. It's only fair, said Rayland, as if he thought she was complaining. I don't like this slaving lark any more than you do, but times are hard, and we did catch you. There's no denying it. Suddenly, faster than Tom would have thought possible, Hester moved. She dragged a metal lever out of the winch and swung it at Rayland. His club went whirling out of his hand and hit the deck with a glockenspiel sound, and the metal bar struck him a glancing blow on the side of his head. Ow! he wailed, crumpling to the floor. Hester lurched forward and raised the bar again, but before she could bring it down on the old man's skull, Tom grabbed her arm. Stop! You'll kill him! So? She swung toward him, snaggle teeth bared, looking like a demented monkey. So? He's right, my dear, said a gentle voice. There is no need to finish him. Out of the shadows stepped the woman from the bar, her red coat swirling around her ankles as she walked toward them. I think we should get aboard my ship before the rest of his people come looking for you. You said we didn't have enough money, Tom reminded her. You don't, Mr. Nitsworthy, said the aviatrix. But I can hardly stand by and watch you be taken away to be sold as slaves, can I? I was a slave myself once, and I wouldn't recommend it. She had taken off her glasses. Her eyes were dark and almond-shaped, and fine webs of laughter lines crinkled at their corners when she smiled. Besides, she added, you intrigue me. Why is a Londoner wandering about in the hunting ground getting into trouble? She held out her hand to Tom, a long brown hand with the thin machinery of bones and tendons clearly visible, sliding under papery skin. How do we know you won't betray us like Raylan did? he demanded. You don't, of course, she laughed. You will just have to trust me. After Valentine and the Raylans, Tom didn't think he would ever be able to trust anybody again. But this strange foreigner was the only hope he had. All right, he said. But Rayland got my name wrong. It's Natsworthy. And mine is Fang, said the woman. Miss Anna Fang. She still had her hand outstretched, as if he were a scared animal she wanted to tame, and she was still smiling her alarming red smile. My ship is on Air Key 6. So they went with her, and somewhere in the oily shadows under the keys they stepped over Raylan's companions, who lay slumped against a stanchion with their heads lolling drunkenly. Are they? whispered Tom. Out cold, said Miss Fang. I'm afraid... I just don't know my own strength. Tom wanted to stop and check that the men were all right, but she led him quickly past and up a ladder to Key Six. 
The ship that hung at anchor there was not the elegant sky clipper Tom had been expecting. In fact, it was little more than a shabby scarlet gas bag and a cluster of rusty engine pods bolted to a wooden gondola. It's made of junk, he gasped. Junk, laughed Miss Fang. Why, the Jenny Hanover is built from bits of the finest airships that ever flew. An envelope of silicon silk from a Shanguo clipper. Twin Jeune Caro aero engines of a Paris gunship. The reinforced gas cells of a Spitzbergen war balloon. It's amazing what you can find in the scrapyards. She led them up the gangplank into the cramped, spicy-smelling gondola. It was just a narrow wooden tube with a flight deck at the front and Miss Fang's quarters at the stern, a jumble of other little cabins in between. Tom had to keep ducking to avoid braining himself on overhead lockers and dangerous-looking bundles of cables that hung from instrument panels on the roof. But the aviatrix flitted around, mumbling in some strange foreign tongue, as she set switches, pulled levers, and lit dim green electrics that filled the cabin with an aquarium glow. She laughed when she saw Tom's worried look. <laughs> that is Esperanto, the common language of the sky. It's a lonely life on the bird roads, and I have a habit of talking to myself. She pulled on a final lever, and the creak and sigh of gas valves echoed through the gondola. There was a clang as the magnetic docking clamps released, and the radio crackled into life and snapped, Jenny Hanover, this is the Staines Harbour Board. You are not cleared for departure. But the Jenny Hanover was departing anyway. Tom felt his stomach turn over as she lifted into the midnight sky. He scrambled to a porthole and saw the market town falling away below. Then Speedwell came into view, and soon the whole cluster was spread out below him like a display of model towns in the museum. Jenny Hanover, insisted the loudspeaker, return to your berth at once. We have a request from the Speedwell Town Council that you give up your passengers or they will be forced to... Boring! trilled Miss Fang, flicking the radio off. A homemade rocket battery on the roof of Speedwell Town Hall spat a fizzing flock of missiles after them. Three hissed harmlessly past, a fourth exploded off the starboard quarter, making the gondola swing like a pendulum, and the fifth came even closer. Anna Fang raised an eyebrow at that one, while Tom and Hester ducked for cover like frightened rabbits. Then they were out of range. The Jenny Hanover was climbing into the cold, clear spaces of the night, and the trading cluster was just a distant smear of light beneath the clouds.